I'm here with John Stoll. John Stoll, uh, among guitarists, needs no introduction, really. Um, one of the most advanced chordal players, one of the most advanced harmonic uh, individuals I've come across, um, and also a very experienced teacher. And I'm looking forward to talking to John today about teaching, about repertoire, about all sorts of stuff. But John, can you start off telling us about any coffee habits that you have, just to give us a personal window into who you are, or tea, or any beverage you hold as sacred in your life? I know that's your lead-off question, because I watched your interview with Ben Ronder, John. Great to be with you, by the way. Nice to see you again. Yeah, thanks for We've had coming. a few meetings in person in the past, but it's nice to be reconnected. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I do like coffee and tea both. I'd say I'm more of a coffee than a tea guy, but I don't have any kind of ritual. I try to grind the beans myself, or my girlfriend does for me, but just any good quality bean, strong and black, and maybe a cup or two a day. I try not to overdo it. But I think moderate coffee consumption is actually healthy. So, and I like the way it tastes. So sometimes in Europe, I'll be with my Italian friends and have some rocket fuel espresso with no sugar. <laughs> and you think, gee, this is a small cup until you drink it. And then you realize two of these and I have a heart attack. So, mm -hmm. so my Italian friends like it strong and in some cases sweet, but I, I forego the sugar. But in general, if it's a good quality bean, I like it strong and black. So, Are you, still in, uh, sorry, are you still in uh, Oregon? Yeah, I live in, yeah, I'm still in Portland, Oregon. Yeah. Where are you these days, John? I'm in Los Angeles. Okay. Um, well, we can, I get down there occasionally. So I hope maybe we'll be able to say hi in person. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, is there a coffee place in Oregon that you like at all or? Uh, not really. I mean, I generally drink it at home if I, I mean, even Starbucks is really okay. Pete's has some nice coffee. I think there are a few of those in Portland. I see those in the Bay Area pretty often. So, you know, any kind of a good coffee spot. Um, Seattle's Best is pretty good. They have some of those in Portland. But I generally don't go out for coffee. I usually just get it at home or with my girlfriend. That's the way to do it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Well, now I, uh, you know, I know you're playing very well, but this is good to know who you are as a coffee drinker. <laughs> um, okay, so um, I have a bunch of different topics here that, you know, I listed out. And um, I, I guess I want, I want to start off with this idea of the exhaustive guitarist and... Um, Basically, mm -hmm. this is a term that I've been using to describe sort of like ultra systematic players or like sort mm -hmm. of encyclopedic players. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm curious, you know, like in my mind, there's like Chuck Wayne and like Ben Maunders, an extension of that. And you know, Indeed. Ted Green. And I'm curious um, if this term resonates with you at all and who comes to mind um, in for your uh, you know, sense. Sure. Well, I am actually, I, don't, I would not put myself in that category. We can talk about that later. But if I were to just list folks in that category, Ben Monder is definitely one of them mm -hmm. in terms of really extensive harmonized scales, different string sets and so forth. Uh, in addition to Ted Green, I would also include Jimmy Weibel on that list. Okay. You may know about Jimmy if you're in LA. He lived to his late 80s and was an unbelievably great guitar player and very, very organized in his approach. Uh, his book, that David Oakes read it in the early 90s, uh, that Jimmy wrote in the 70s called The Art of Two-Line Improvisation. It's an incredible book of, of about 16, 17, etudes that Jimmy wrote using all this beautiful inner voice movement, um, lots of shell voicings with double stops. Uh, and I've, I had a chance to meet and know Jimmy when he was still in good health in his early 80s. And he played well for another almost 10 years. And I watched him at his house go through some of these things. And I haven't really studied the etudes per se in terms of playing through all of them, but I've taken little pieces of them. Mm -hmm. And just watching him do it really influenced me in terms of breaking chords down into smaller shell voicings. And Jimmy was an elegant, beautiful guitar player and a sweet, humble gentleman who loved every, everyone else's playing too and was very mm -hmm. engaged in trying to be a better guitar player in his mid-80s and still teaching. He took a long break because his wife was ill and he was taking care of her at home. And when she passed away, she loved the music too. So Jimmy was anxious to get out and play and teach again. So Sid Jacobs got him some work at MI teaching. He did a little bit of touring and uh, was an incredible, beautiful player and a very generous, gentle man. Mm -hmm. I'm just happy to know him. So I would definitely include Jimmy in that list. That's a good uh, my, buddy Tim, my buddy Tim Lurch up in Seattle uh, is someone who's done a lot of beautiful things. He studied with, um, with Ted Green and like also Tim, Tim Lurch, L-E-R-C-H. And Tim has a number of very successful um, courses out on the True Fire uh, uh, website and he and I both were, have done some things for True Fire. It's a really good company based in Florida. So Tim has this approach to harmonize scales and um, and triads, and he's a very also a very systematic player. One other person on the list that you may not know about is my buddy Randy Vincent, who has a number of excellent books out with uh, Chuck Shear, Drop Two, Drop Three, Solo Lines, and Randy has a terrific chord vocabulary. And we've played and taught a little bit together. Uh, up in Sonoma, a little bit north of you, a little bit north of San Francisco, where Randy's lived for years. And I would put Randy on that list too. 
Excellent. Cool. Uh, I'm surprised I haven't heard of Tim because I'm you know, from uh, Tacoma myself. And so Are you? That's right. I, yeah. I like to think that I know some of the you know Northwestern players, but uh... you would like Tim. He's got a very successful YouTube channel as well. And he and I've done a few things together. Um, that are some of which are posted on his YouTube channel and mine as well. You'd like him. He's a swinging kind of understated, elegant player, a little bit like Ted Green, but he also can play blues and he's in a Django style band. It's very successful up there called Pearl Django. He took the place of one of the original. Oh, okay. Guitar. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So one of the original guitar players left or retired and Tim took his place. So that band is still active. And uh, Tim and Jamie Finley and I have been doing some work together. You might know Jamie from his time in LA. Jamie's a very good guitar player too. We have something coming up in about two weeks assuming the virus permits us to gather. So. Right. Well, awesome. Cool. Those are all uh, names that I, I should, you know, investigate some more. Um, I, I, also, I did have a, the opportunity to meet Jimmy Weibel briefly, I think probably Excellent. Like a year before he passed and he did a clinic at USC and it was, it was ah. really, you know, uh, inspiring and pretty cool. But um, yeah, Jimmy, I'm happy you had to see him and had a chance to see him in person. Jimmy was a wonderful man and mm -hmm. uh, happy to share his knowledge. Here's how generous he was. When he was in his mid-80s, he commissioned four or five guitars from people like Roger Boys and others, just beautiful handmade instruments. And he knew in advance exactly who they were all going to. He had homes picked out for all those guitars, knowing he wouldn't be around for that long to enjoy them. I know one went to Larry Kuntz, maybe one to Sid Jacobs. Jimmy was just a very generous, caring man. That's, that's awesome. Um, cool. Well, um, so you, you wouldn't include yourself in this camp. and uh, I would not. <laughs> I definitely feel like you're playing as curious exploratory like organic but i don't get an obsessive vibe from you which um, yeah. i mean in the best way but also you right. know like ben's obsessiveness i i mean in the best way too so yeah i mean i mean that, that ben's approach has served him very well and i think probably and maybe as in my old age i'll get a little more systematic about some of this but if you ask me to kind of catalog drop two and drop threes i'd say not really what i do uh, is much sort of more random partially because i'm lazy and partially because i like to be in the moment Mm -hmm. So my approach to chords, for example, John, is to just go to a place on the next, start with a familiar voicing, use the formula to just uncover some other shapes and sounds that I like. So I tell everybody, start with C major seven and find the nine. So come just add Ds to some version of C major all over the neck and go back and find the six. So add an A then add an A and a D together. Then you have six, nine chords, et cetera. So it's not specifically harmonizing a scale uh, in a very systematic way, but I have lots of shapes and sounds and a pretty good notion of visualizing available notes on the neck relative to simple shapes so in that sense it's kind of systematic but not nearly as systematic as, as ben's approach for example mm -hmm. yeah you don't seem to be reading like uh, the way that i was describing your playing to my wife is like uh you seem like somebody that's very well read who has an excellent vocabulary from reading so such a wide range of stuff versus somebody mm -hmm. who sits there reading the encyclopedia and trying to like, yeah. ingest that so i think that's true so i think you know intelligent guesswork can work reasonably well. Another thing I tell folks, if you want to look at a, a great chord book, like the McGoodrick books, the Randy Vincent books that I mentioned, the Ted Green books, they're full of beautiful voicings. Sid Jacobs actually did quite a nice book called the Bill Evans Guitar Book, where he took about 15 of Bill's tunes and took as much of Bill's harmony from the piano as he could, translated it to the guitar. So you have lots of beautiful pianistic voicings and the tunes themselves are beautiful. But I would say that the way to retain new shapes rather than try to learn a hundred versions of C major in a day, which you can certainly find in any good chord book, mm -hmm. it's just to pull out a few inversions that you like and use them in an arrangement. This is how, how we, you know, how I retain new shapes in the context of an arrangement. All my little tunes are chord melodies. I, I, I hear the melodies and the chords at the same time in my little compositions. Mm -hmm. And I've used some of those chords uh, more broadly to comp or in other tunes or those shapes in some cases can be templates to generate single lines. So uh, basically, if you find some chords you like, put them in at least in the context of a short cadence like a two five one, or an actual chord melody or learn someone else's chord melody. And once you play that arrangement 20 times, you've got some new shapes available to you that, that you're able to retain and remember. In terms of like the, the wide variety of chords that are at your disposal, uh, like, is there ever a chord that you're just like, this is a bad chord? Like, do you, do you think in a judgmental way ever? Like, do you think- Sometimes. They're all good or, you know, no, I think are just I mean, wrong. <laughs> not necessarily wrong, but some that, I mean, wrong is, a, is, you know, you have to put wrong in parentheses because wrong to someone else can sound completely right to somebody else. Mm -hmm. uh, there's some shapes that physically I can't do. I know mm -hmm. that Ted Green would occasionally flatten out his first finger over two strings in the middle of a chord. And mm -hmm. I think that sounds great, but I just am not physically comfortable doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's some chords that just don't grab my ear that I'm particularly interested in playing more than once. And they, oh, that chord works. 
Uh, and sometimes the best chord to play in a particular musical conversation, John, is a very simple chord. Mm-hmm. So I'm certainly not averse to playing a, a very basic inversion of a major or dominant chord. And then sort of mixing some of the more extended sounds with the basic sounds to give your playing some variety. And some, I'm, in anything I play, I try to, assuming I'm playing with other musicians, if I'm playing alone, I just do whatever I feel like doing. But mm-hmm. if I'm playing with others, I'm trying to serve that particular musical conversation. And sometimes the best sound to play is a very simple sound. Absolutely. You know, so tensions, extensions are great, but if anything is done to the exclusion of everything else, no matter how interesting it is, it's going to sound a little bit predictable after a while. Yeah. You know, so simple is good, complicated is good, and you just make decisions based on the musical moment. It's funny, like the, you know, the uh, major seventh chord in like, I guess, uh, third inversion where there's that minor ninth. Um, mm-hmm. I, I feel like I've heard so many guitarists just say like, this is a chord you don't play because it's bad. And in my mind, it's like, no, that's an very interesting chord i would agree just because as a minor ninth doesn't mean that it's a wrong chord no i agree and also sometimes putting um a a minor ninth or a minor second interval in a chord if it's surrounded by other consonant notes it kind of hides the fact that you've got this very close interval Mm -hmm. and i've got a bunch of my tunes with with uh, minor ninths in them or minor seconds in them and uh the rest of the chord is very constant so it can work Mm -hmm. good um well let's see here what else do we have um so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about your gear. Um, sure. Uh, I feel like uh, I want to say that we have a similar sort of uh, relation to gear. Uh, like I might be a little bit more cynical uh, because like I, mm-hmm. I, I, w- I don't want to be the guy that has like a thousand pedals. Um, like I own two pedals and I don't use mm-hmm. them. <laughs> um, I own one pedal. So we're kind of on the same on the same page on that one, John. Um, I don't want to be like an adult that has these sort of underutilized toys. Like I want to have a beautiful tool that I use um, to create art or whatever. And I feel like you're the same mm-hmm. way. Um, yeah. But also it seems like you're very tuned into like the ergonomics um, of mm-hmm. guitars. And um, I'm curious, like what defines a good instrument to you? Or like, what do you look for? When sure. You're- so, you know, when you've been playing for a while, it's generally pretty personal. Although I've seen some guys like Jonathan Kreisberg, it's a beautiful, incredible sound out of a stock 175. Mm-hmm. I don't think he's done anything to the electronics. He's got a bunch of pedals that he uses very well, actually. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of it is in the, the touch that you develop in your hands. And that is something you can't really preconceive. That just develops over time. And Jonathan has that guitar perfectly in tune all over the neck. And he plays sometimes quite loud in groups with pedals. I'm assuming he's using the heel of his right hand to mute the string so it doesn't feed back and howl like a banshee. Mm-hmm. But a stock 175, and he gets a beautiful jazz sound out of it. And he can also really manipulate all the pedals in very effective ways. So, uh, you know, I think it's it's really personal in terms of what works for you. So it doesn't necessarily have to be a sort of a tricked out, customized instrument to get a beautiful sound. Mm-hmm. So in my case, now I've got six or seven instruments. If I'm not, you know, if I'm not playing an instrument, I'll find a good home for it. So my feeling is, you know, by all means, have multiple instruments as long as they're all being played. Right. So I play all my instruments now often enough that I want to keep them all. So what I've got right now are three headless guitars, okay. two of which are made by a man named Roscoe Wright, who used to live in Eugene, Oregon. Now he lives on the gorge, but he's still in Oregon. And I got the first one initially just for the airplane, and I wasn't sure initially I'd like it. But over the years, I've grown to really like it. It's one of my main instruments. So that one is a, and these are all on my YouTube channel if people want to see them. So the steel string one that I have from him is called the Dragonfly, and it's a custom version with a graphite, solid piece of graphite for the neck, bolted onto a piece of maple. And for pickups, uh, the pickup that was in it initially when I got it from Roscoe, I wasn't happy with it, felt a little thin. So I talked to Steve Blucher at DiMarzio, who's a very nice man, and DiMarzio is known more as a company who designs pickups for rock folks. Mm-hmm. But he's also designed pickups for Jim Hall and Kenny Burrell. He's a very knowledgeable man about my age. So he sent me a few. And the one that I liked is actually the Andy Timmons model. And Andy's a great blues fusion player, but it's a high output humbucker. I need high output because I've got a very light touch with my right hand, mm-hmm. but it's got a beautiful clean sound. So I threw that in the neck position. And then I also have an RMC piezo on that guitar. So I'm using a little bit of piezo, but primarily the neck position Andy Timmons. And I think I get quite a nice jazz sound on that little travel box. Mm-hmm. So then I got another one from Roscoe that's a solid piece of maple as a nylon string. And that also just has the RMC only. And that gets really a pretty good sound for a travel nylon. Uh, it doesn't really have any acoustic properties, but if I'm in the studio with either of those guitars, I'll also put a mic a couple of inches away from my right hand so I can get a little bit of the pick string articulation. Hmm. Uh, and those guitars have both served me well. Uh, my third headless, I use baritone tuning for. I think I'm down a major third on that one. I keep that on the East Coast at my sister's. And that was made by a man named uh, Fernando de Olesa. His company is Solesa. 
and he's built some guitars for a bunch of high-end folks too, but it's a nice chambered instrument with a Joe Barden pickup, and I'm using baritone tuning on that one, C to C. Uh, back here in Portland, I've got other guitars, one from a, um, a really good Slovenian luthier named Luka Zaletel, who's made guitars recently for Yotam Silberstein, and, um, and um, there were some of the other high-profile guys. He's got one that he's just made for Gilad Hexelman, another one for um, uh, who are some of the other high-profile folks. I'll think of them in a minute. Uh, Leonel Loeke, he built a seven-string four. It's a very nice chamber Telecaster seven-string. So Luca's got a nice waiting list for his guitars. And the one he built me, I decided to use baritone tuning for. I've got that tuned down a fourth. That's also on my YouTube channel. I've got a nylon acoustic electric made by a man here named Mike Doolin in Portland. Very nice, uh, relatively small body with a K&K system. So it has some acoustic sound, but it's primarily an acoustic electric nylon that I've used on a bunch of recordings and gigs. And the last one I've got is a fretless baritone that started out as a fretted guitar that I had the first taken off of. And I had little pieces of plastic put in as little uh, inserts. So for me to play it in tune, to have those little plastic pieces that I can use to kind of get myself oriented on the neck. And I've got that guitar and the uh, headless Solesa tuned down a major third, C to C, and my Zalatel tuned down a fourth, B to B. So having multiple instruments, I would say to guys, can broaden your playing in ways that you don't necessarily expect or anticipate. The guitar will kind of speak to you if you play it enough, and you'll discover things that work. So with the lower tuned instruments, close intervals on the low strings don't work so well. So you just discover voicings that work. And, uh, you know, you kind of find ways to play guitars simply by playing them. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think my playing has broadened in ways that I didn't anticipate by having all these different instruments. I play all of them enough that I feel comfortable with them. Yeah, uh, Pedal-wise... The, sorry, the fretless uh, baritone that you play, it was interesting hearing you play because I feel like uh, there's such a sort of upright bass quality to the way yes, that you is. treat it. And um, yeah. yeah, it was a very interesting sound. Yeah, chords are problematic with an instrument like that because you, if you play more than two notes, double stops I can more or less do. And you use a bit of wide vibrato like a fretless bass to make the intonation a little less crucial. So I can do double stops, but I almost never try to play any more than two or three notes on that guitar in terms of chords. Mm -hmm. But it does have a voice. And I've recorded with it, and uh, sometimes I'll double melodies with that guitar. I've got a new uh, project coming out with my friend Dave Glenn on Origin called Violin Memories, trombone and guitar okay. with string quartet. Dave did some string quartet. I think I sent that to you. If I haven't, I will. Um, but I'm doubling some of the melodies on, on, on some other records. I solo on the fretless on that particular record. I'm just doubling some melodies on the fretless. And it's, it's a nice sound. It has a kind of a very vocal quality to it. Uh, you mentioned, you know, Jonathan Kreisberg and having his instrument totally in tune. And I feel like uh, I've always had an issue with the guitars, you know, uh, intonation or like, mm -hmm. I feel like that's a common shortcoming of guitarists is to not have their intonation together. Mm -hmm. And um, so I sort of feel like this is an obligatory thing that I have to mention to you. But um, my friend has this company called Microtone Guitars, mm -hmm. and they're basically building these guitars with uh, magnetic uh, fretboards that you can just swap out for different temperaments. Mm -hmm. and uh, like precision fret placement. So it's all mm -hmm. super in tune. And I'm curious where your mind would go with that. Like what would be the uh, sort of like temperament you would desire or do you just equal temperament all the way? Or Interesting. Matter? Yeah, I mean, I, I'd be curious to see your friend instruments sometimes. Uh, mm -hmm. It sounds intriguing. Um, you know, to me, good intonation is critical. So I just mm -hmm. try to, I haven't done anything special to guitars other than just have the, most of my guitars have um, some kind of a tunematic bridge, so I can't adjust them. And I just have a luthier set those up for me so that they're playing pretty well in tune. Mm -hmm. But to me, that's critical to have the guitars in tune. Um, I don't do a lot of chord work way up high on the neck above the 12th fret. So maybe there's spots where it's not absolutely perfectly in tune, but I've just found a way to play that the intonation works well enough for me. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I really want good, and nylon strings are harder to keep in tune, as you may know, but I, I love the sound of a nylon string perfectly in tune. So I try to get as close as I can. Um, so, yeah, I think about intonation, but I'm, I wouldn't say I'm obsessive about it, but I do want to hear the guitars in tune. Absolutely. Are there any sort of like wacky, wacky out there guitars you've played, like MIDI guitars or like, you know, uh, uh, like 19 tone uh, temperament things or anything? Um, yeah, well, my buddy Neil Haverstick has a bunch of these wacky guitars, microtonal. They almost sound like, um, who's the man who, Harry Parch. He's got mm -hmm. guitars that sort of sound like something Harry Parch might build, and he's got lots of those instruments. Um, I did, I'd fiddle around with MIDI for a while in the 90s, like a lot of other folks. And then I found after a while that I was using more of the guitar signal and the MIDI kind of coloring underneath. So sometimes like an electric, like a road sound or a vibe sound 
very softly underneath the primary guitar sound. That's kind of where I went. And then I eventually just turned it all off. <laughs> and I used the chorus for a while and then I turned that off. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of other folks have had similar evolutions. So if you listen to Pat Metheny's sound, you know, in the 80s versus the sound now, his sound now is very pure. Mm-hmm. And Schofield too, John just goes right into a Fender amp now. I think it's backline on the road these days and just uses with no pedals. He's just using his hands to create a little bit of distortion and saturation and backing off if he wants it cleaner. And so I think a lot of us have discovered that just having the guitar in your hands and creating all the sound with your hands and your attack can, can be very rewarding. Absolutely. Some guys use the pedals very creatively, like Jonathan or Gilad Hexelman or Bill Frizzell. So the pedals have a place if you like them. But I'm, I'm kind of like you. I just have one pedal, basically. I've got a little uh, RV7 uh, from Hardwire. It's just a little digital reverb that I can take on the road. Uh, if I'm lucky, I can get two amps. If I'm at home here, on the east coast i have a pretty good amp setup if i'm flying then i just i'm uh, sort of relying on the good graces of friends to help me mm-hmm. uh, what i've been doing lately and a lot, number of other folks have done this too probably for the last 10 years or more is mixing tube and solid state together with this little pedal so just the two outputs of the uh, rv7 going into the front end of the amps so my uh solid state setup uh, on the east coast is just a little rolling cube and then in a, a car sportsman which is a really nice boutique tube amp that a friend loaned me when i'm out west i've got something called a vsa which is a little like a fender princeton and then an acoustic image setup with the claris head and um rick jones created a new little extension cabinet called the double shot which is two opposing tens and a front-facing tweeter and then another cabinet with a front-facing ten and the down-facing ten down-firing ten so i'll put the two uh, acoustic image rigs on either side of the tube amp so it's a little bit to lug around, but it's a really nice sound. Mm-hmm. And I don't do this for volume or for the quality of the sound. So the tubes obviously give you the, the high end and the, and the warmth and the open back. And the solid state is a little bit more punchy mids. But I don't have to drive the tube amp that hard. I don't want the tube amp to break up. I'd like it to be pretty clean. Right. So mixing all those together, I can do that. Awesome. Um, that sounds interesting. Uh, it's funny. I you know you mentioned the headless guitars, and I I also became a headless guitarist yeah. recently um, with a Strandberg, and it's you like it? to, yeah. It's, I mean, it's wonderful to have it all in tune with the fan frets, and um, yeah. I'm a seven string guy now, which is okay. uh, a big identity change for me. <laughs> yeah, I've got some friends who play seven too. I love the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I have my hands full with six, but I do occasionally play with seven string players. It's beautiful to have that low end. Mm-hmm becomes a little problematic when they stop comping and start soloing because the bottom end goes away yeah. but it, it is a beautiful sound yeah and i feel like a lot of seven string players want to be the guy that's walking the bass line at the same time and sure like, let's just get a bass player <laughs> yeah yeah but, um anyway uh so uh, i wanted to talk a little bit about repertoire um okay you know first of all um your youtube channel is excellent and um, thanks i was very uh, impressed by everything and um, I love that you do these quizzes where you you know play uh, a tune and you sort of say like I will play this in a different meter a different key and it's your job mm-hmm. to try to identify it and mm-hmm. you're very generously offering uh, Skype lessons as a reward um, I, do. I haven't done that in a while but I may do it again it's just a fun way to I think we can throw out friendly challenges to each other mm-hmm. and uh, I love like I said playing in different keys I have a number of tunes with modulations built into the arrangement of the tune so it could be tunes in multiple courses, or it could be splitting a tune in half if it's 32 bars. So I've got probably half a dozen or more tunes that I like to play with some, with some key changes. And I would argue that that's a good way to internalize and memorize harmony generally. If you're seeing things in multiple keys, mm-hmm. you're seeing the relationships. Definitely. So, uh, and you know, to throw out a little quiz, I think that's fun. If I'm playing a real familiar tune, uh, you know, most musicians might get it after a course. But I can disguise that a little bit by playing it in an unfamiliar key or another meter. If the odd meters I'm doing primarily are five, four, seven, four. Um, my buddy Mickey Lee, who's from Serbia, we, we've done some work together in Vienna. I'm going to see him next summer, hopefully. Uh, we did a course together recently, or a class together recently for Mike's master classes. I've got a bunch of lessons that I've co-taught now over the last couple of years with friends. So Mickey and I have done two. And because he's from Serbia, he's very comfortable in the eighth note. Uh, odd meters so he was doing i was doing five four and seven four and he was doing seven eight and nine eight and eleven eight and he was counting for us you know for the benefit of those who are not that conversant in those odd meters Mm -hmm. and you know serbian and macedonian folk melodies uh, lay perfectly in those you're probably you're either you're counting some variation of two and three or maybe four Mm -hmm. so he's counting one two one two one two three one two one two but he he was also doing that with standards he was doing with all the things awesome and it's sort of i haven't done it yet but it sort of piqued my interest a bit too think a little bit about doing some of the odd meters in eight, eighth, eighth notes as opposed to four. I'm, I'm better now in the last two years 
uh, as a result of playing with some friends uh, in 5.4 and 7.4. I'm fairly comfortable on those two meters now. And some standards, actually, uh, the melodies lay perfectly in those odd meters. It's almost mm -hmm. like they should be written in those. In fact, I have a hard time going back to 4.4 4 or 3.4 with some of these. I've been playing them for so long in 5.4 or 7.4. Or mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, I like to say that 5 is the new three or like the new waltz and i think uh, that's right seven yeah. like i feel like all the things you are now is like after brad meldow did the seven yeah. version it's like yeah it's just in seven now. it kind of feels like it should be you know another good one in seven is tree state it's perfect yeah, totally. right so some yeah some tunes really and these are saying all the things it really sounds like they should be played in those meters i agree Mm -hmm. yeah i mean the, the eighth eighth note is superfluous i guess um, yeah that's... Uh, i'm curious uh you mentioned uh serbia like a serbian guitarist and i'm curious if you're familiar with dushan bogdanovich of course i don't know a lot of his work but i certainly know of him and i think he's still active mm -hmm. and he's certainly very conversant in those odd meters for the same reason he grew up in that culture mm -hmm. and mickey and i were both talking about this it seems curious that some countries right next door don't do it at all so this is primarily mm -hmm. relegated to eastern europe why they don't do it in france and germany or I'm not sure about Greece. Greece is right next. I think I think they're doing Turkey uh, and Macedonia for sure, Serbia for sure, Hungary for sure. Bela Bartok did it 100 years ago. Who's going around with Zoltan Kodoy to villages and put a wireless tape recorder and taping some of these folk melodies and using them in his symphonic work. So all those countries for sure. Western Europe, not really. And why that is, I don't know. Yeah, Mickey didn't know either. Maybe it just had to do with some somehow the culture, a particular culture, evolved these odd meters. Uh, we didn't really know. Maybe, maybe a musicologist could, could tell us, but I thought, mm -hmm. that, I thought that was interesting. Um, I, I'm of Portuguese descent, but I like to say that huh. I'm, I'm spiritually Balkan <laughs> for okay. along those lines because uh, I just have such a fascination with odd meters. But, interesting. Um, uh, so in terms of like, you know, woodshedding and, you know, your learning uh, repertoire, it seems like, you know, you're putting it through different keys, different meters, uh, mm -hmm. almost like sort of like lifting weights to get stronger or something. To, like, I think that's right. But yeah. it's also, I mean, it should also be musical. I mean, I would argue that there are some things that you practice that you wouldn't necessarily do on a gig just to build strength and skill. Mm -hmm. um, but other things really do have musical applications. So sometimes I'll try something and realize, oh, this is, it's kind of interesting. It's a practice tool, but nothing that really is something that I would apply on a gig. It just is not, there's too much trouble. It's more trouble than it's worth. And the audience right. wouldn't hear what you're doing, or it just isn't musical. Mm -hmm. I'll give you one example. You're probably familiar with the Tostilman's version of Days of Wine and Roses that he did for Bill Evans and F and A flat, 32 bar tune. So that's a very easy, uh, that's a very easy strategy just to split it in half, 16 and 16 and F and A flat. And you just modulate back down again. And someone told me recently that there's a John Abercrombie, Andy Laverne version of Wine and Roses on a record. I haven't heard it in F and A. And the sharp key definitely feels really different and fun. Mm -hmm. And I realized on the way back to get back to F, if you end up on A, instead of playing A major for the last bar, play A minor, and then it just becomes a three, six, two, five, one back to F major. So I've been playing that version. And then I was thinking to a friend, hey, let's alternate F and A flat and F and A. They <laughs> tried it and thought, yeah, it's kind of interesting, but it's more trouble than it's worth. And no one's going to really hear the difference anyway. Mm -hmm. So let's just stick to, you know, two keys as opposed to three. But I tried it and we were able to do it. And so, you know, this idea of challenging yourself in a way that just helps you retain information is useful. And then you may decide, well, this is not really something we'd want to do on a gig necessarily, mm -hmm. uh, but it was fun to try. And I, we were able to do it. I think um, it was maybe Alan Pasqua and Dark Holes who were doing, um, they're great. They, they did giant steps and they would, uh, at the end of each, you know, course, they would go to like the next third up. So instead really? of like two fiving back to B major, they would two five into like E flat and then start from the E flat. Wow. And so it takes like three That's cycles, ambitious. I guess, to get back. <laughs> That's ambitious. Yeah. I guess I could, I guess I could probably figure that out, but uh, that would take some. I don't know if I could do that in my head. Maybe I could. Mm -hmm. Again, you, you know, the way to retain information is just to see the key centers. So mm -hmm. giant steps, you got three key centers basically. So mm -hmm. yeah, you could do it. I did a, one of the classes I taught with Steve Herberman, who's a great seven string player in the DC area. We took Stella, and. That was recorded and also in the film it's in multiple versions it started the, the film was the uninvited and that was originally instrumental there are no lyrics uh so the uninvited is about a ghost and she would appear apparently some of the theme of stella would appear in the movie in the, in the soundtrack but sinatra recorded it in g and it's really nice in g benson has mm -hmm. played it in g also so steve and i went back and forth between g and b flat 
And, you know, that still it does take a minute to transpose. But after a couple of passes through, I had it. Mm-hmm. And um, so I could probably play still in any key now. And uh, this idea of just moving through multiple keys uh, could be whole courses in, in different uh, keys. If it's if a modulation is not sort of obvious or really apparent in the case of still, I think it's probably easier to do whole courses in different keys. Mm-hmm. But if put a 32 bar tune, you absolutely can split it in half if it, if it makes musical sense. Very interesting. Um the so in terms of like acquiring repertoire um you know mm-hmm. it occurred to me that a lot of these tunes you know are essentially like songs that were like on the radio for people to hear and you know uh you know pick up by osmosis just from listening to it but That's nowadays right. like uh you know something like stella by starlight isn't on the radio or sure. on spotify uh as like a big tune and so i'm wondering do you feel like um as jazz modernizes should the canon sort of continue to shift to like what's on the radio and doing that type of thing because i mean in a way for you know people that are younger than me even then it's like mm-hmm. uh like is it really relevant for them or like it, there's something almost inauthentic feeling or like um forced about them trying to learn like uh you know stella by starlight or something well that's an interesting point repertoire is a really personal choice john mm-hmm. so i'm actually encouraged because you know, i'm now meeting some of the good younger players in some cases in their late teens early 20s either still in a good college program or having just graduated and they're out trying to do sessions. And I still go to people's houses to do jam sessions. In some cases with folks in their late teens, early twenties who play really well. Mm-hmm. And some of those players do want to play and are learning that uh, standard repertoire. So mm-hmm. they are playing Stella by Starlight. Now I don't really play Stella, Star- Stella by Starlight at my own jam sessions so much now, but if someone calls it at a club, sure, I'm down for playing Stella by Starlight. Mm-hmm. But the point I'm making is uh, to know how the harmony moves in the standard repertoire is useful. So I would say some of the younger players, yes, are learning those tunes. Um, is, are you going to give the audience a new experience by playing Stella by Starlight? Probably not. Mm-hmm. But can you kind of find your own path through those changes as an improviser? Absolutely, you can. Mm-hmm. And I still find plenty of challenges harmonically in Stella by Starlight in terms of nuance, how I interact with other musicians, the conversation. I'm not going to record Stella by Starlight or play that on one of my own gigs. Mm-hmm. But if someone calls that at a session, I'm down for it. Now, if I'm at somebody's house, however, which I still do also. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll still show up at a club. I was at one last night, actually. It was kind of a jam session. Uh, but if I'm at somebody's house for a jam session, which I still do, I use that as an opportunity to bring new music, new music for me. So in addition to fake books, I've got lots of individual sheets of music uh, that I picked up at jam sessions that I liked enough to ask for copies of. And this is how I learn repertoire. So my repertoire in terms of my own recordings or my own gigs are tunes that the audience does not know. Mm-hmm. Now, someone else might say, you should give them something familiar. And that's if that's their preference, God bless them. Mm-hmm. But my feeling is it's okay to introduce an audience to unfamiliar material if the melodies are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And maybe talk to them a little bit about why you like a particular tune, or maybe there's a bit of backstory about the composer. So we can engage the audience on that level to kind of invite them into a sort of an unfamiliar world of tunes that they haven't heard before, why we like those tunes. So I'll give you an example. Tom Jobim, if you're a jazz musician, you play four or five songs that he wrote. Unless you're Brazilian, that's your that's your Brazilian repertoire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom Jobim Tom alone wrote 400 songs. So I'm up to about 20 of his. And there's some beautiful ones that nobody plays unless you're Brazilian. Mm-hmm. And I love that music. I love to hear them sing in Portuguese to understand how to phrase those melodies. And the harmonies, for the most part, not difficult. Uh, some of the more modern Brazilian composers like Toninho Orta or some of the guys who are the next generation after Jobim, some of the music is a little more challenging, but also beautiful. Mm-hmm. So I play a few tunes from Toninho that are great. Um, and I have looked at some others. Um, you know, uh, some, some friends of mine play in Brazilian groups here, so I'm am, I've sort of broadened my Brazilian repertoire in the last few years. So I look at uh, jam sessions at people's homes as an opportunity to learn new repertoire, to learn new songs in a shared environment. So I picked up a few new tunes over the last couple of years from Kenny Barron, from Toninho, some tunes that were older standards that are new to me. Uh, Jerome Kern's last tune, which I've been playing now for probably 15 years, he wrote for a revival of Showboat in the late 40s, and the tune is Nobody Else But Me. Brad Melville plays it. So we actually transcribed it from a Brad Melville recording, probably in the 90s. And it's the only standard I know that modulates down a half step. The whole tune is pretty much diatonic in C, but he slips down into B for a couple of, couple of bars, four or five bars into the tune. It's the only standard I know that does it. So I'm still, you know, I'm still learning older standards. Uh, so you don't have to confine yourself to a particular time period in the music. Just mm-hmm. find tunes that resonate with you. I've learned a few new Wayne Shorter songs. 
Um, you know, I like Steve Swallow's writing. I like Kenny Wheeler's writing. Mm-hmm. Um, and these are songs that even the average jazz musician wouldn't necessarily play. The average jazz audience member would not know. But I'm really okay with this. Again, my personal preference is more obscure repertoire. Mm-hmm. I've done a bit of writing. So some of my um, recording sets on my original tunes on them, of which I like well enough to record. Um, sometimes I don't play them with anybody else. Maybe I'll just do them for a recording and then not ever play them again. But I haven't written in a while. I have to get off my butt and try to write something. But there, you know, quite a few of my tunes are up on my YouTube channel, mm-hmm. and I like them okay. You know, and uh, I think I tell people composing and improvisation kind of work in tandem. They strengthen each other. So if you compose and create a little body of work, you begin to think like a composer when you improvise in terms of connecting ideas motifically, uh, having an arc to your solo, and that can that skill and it can can is sort of extrapolated out from your writing and vice mm-hmm. versa. You know, so you try to, I mean, to me, the really great improvised solos sound like composition. Mm-hmm. The way the ideas are connected, the strong melodic sensibilities, maybe referencing the melody of the tune when you improvise, being aware of the melody of the tune while you're improvising on that particular tune, mm-hmm. using the tune as a context, your solo should reflect the context of the tune somehow. I do that better on some tunes than others. Mm-hmm. But I think this idea of not just spinning creative licks and just trying to play over changes think about the tune sing the melody of the tune while you're soloing i think that's important mm-hmm. some um, folks think the lyric is important while you're soloing there's a ben webster story about him playing a beautiful ballad in a recording studio he stops the engineer says ben that was fantastic why did you stop i forgot the lyric <laughs> for him it was important to hear that lyric in his head while he was soloing mm-hmm. maybe it just maybe somehow how it affected his phrasing or how the content of the tune somehow affected his mood but is, is it going to hurt you to know the lyric while you're soloing? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I'm curious, um, you know, like uh, in terms of repertoire, like how, like what's the weirdest that you get? Like, um, I, I feel like I've never really heard you like do totally free stuff or maybe uh, I saw you I have. That, that thing in Olympia um, and maybe you did some free stuff there, but. Um... I've done a little of, yeah, depending on who I'm playing with. I have a group, a working group called Scenes. It's a quartet mm-hmm. of folks. Everyone else is based in Seattle. We've done it was originally a quartet, then it became a trio because the horn player Rick Van Dyke blew out a hernia. He had to stop playing the horn for 15 years. And now he's back playing better than ever. So we're now back to a quartet again. So we just did something that they come out as a live recording for the Earshot Festival up in Seattle a couple of months ago. And we've done now, um, we did our first record in 2000. And then we did the next record with the four of us again, 20 years later, two years ago. And Rick's sounding better than ever. And this uh, concert we recorded a few months ago may come out as a live recording. So with that group, we've done a few free improvisations that have occurred on, usually I think every record has one free piece on it with a melody and then kind of free playing. Um, I've done a little bit with Bert Wilson. So you might remember Bert from your time in the Northwest. He was a great tenor player, alto soprano, who um, absolutely knew harmony and changes, but also liked to play kind of freely. So um, when I played with him, we would do some free improvisation. I've done a little bit on, on record. Um, I wouldn't say that's something that I do most of my gigs are not are not uh, that they don't have free improvising but mm-hmm. if someone says let's play something free yeah I'll, i'm down for it i think the best free players are also folks who know harmony well right. so if you hear dave liebman or herbie hancock or wayne shorter play free or mm-hmm. sam rivers you're hearing harmonic structures and things that are connected in terms of uh, motific development and melody that would, would occur if you're playing over over changes so the best free players to me know harmony well and can play stella by starlight so I haven't done a lot of that, but I'd say, you know, maybe five to 10% of my musical life is a little bit of free improvisation, a little bit. Interesting, five to 10%. Um, uh, so when you are in that situation, um, can you give me any sense of what it's like inside your musical mind? Um, sure. Like, are you generally reacting to what somebody's putting forth or do you like uh, find that you're sometimes having to be the aggressive one that's putting the ideas forth or? I think it's both. So, you know, you, you, I mean, you want to create some kind of a tonal center unless you're really just playing texture. Mm-hmm. and not trying to reference anything harmonically. So that could be a rhythmic motif. You want to create some kind of a motif that someone else can respond to. Mm-hmm. So if I'm just playing up and down the neck with no reference to anything, just sound, maybe someone can react to that by creating a different sound, but more than five seconds of that, it's not going to really feel like a conversation. So I'll create some kind of a tonal center. Uh, it might be a particular meter or it might be a pulse with no meter or it might just be rubato, but something that the other musician can respond to or if I'm in the situation where I'm responding, I'm listening and saying, how can I respond to this? Usually to do something different. Mm-hmm. So if someone's playing dense and loud, maybe I'm playing soft with a lot of space. You know, two people doing the same thing for more than 10 seconds is not interesting to me. <laughs> so I want to do something that's a response to what I'm hearing, 
or create something that they can respond to. Mm-hmm. So again, it's a, it's a lot of the same parameters and musical values that happen in a musical conversation over changes in a form can also happen playing freely. So maybe it's just a little vamp that I set up and it is clearly a tonal center. Mm-hmm. And then maybe it becomes something where the meter shifts. So there's suddenly the meter goes away and it's just a pulse. Uh, and then maybe I'll shift to another tonal center, but you've got to stay on that tonal center long enough for the other musician to recognize it and respond to it. Mm-hmm. And it could be, or maybe I create a simple progression with a few chords, but it's an obvious progression that they can respond to. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's a progression that would come from a standard. You know, so the idea is to create something that allows for a conversation to unfold. Mm-hmm. You weren't just, I suppose like uh, you wouldn't want to just talk at somebody with a vocabulary that they don't understand at all. Exactly. Um, that's a, yeah, I mean, again, the, the audience wants to hear us reacting to each other. So you've got to have some substance, what mm-hmm. you're putting out there to allow the other musician to react or you're reacting to them. But it should be something that has some musical content rhythmically or harmonically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. Um, so again, with repertoire, um, you know, we were, we were talking a little bit about like woodshedding repertoire and like internalizing mm-hmm. it all. Um, in terms of like listening, uh, what is your listening like these days? Like how much... How much variety do you listen to? Um, anything that you can tell me about uh, your listening process? Well, that's interesting. You know, I sort of try to keep up, but I kind of feel like a dinosaur these days. If I pick up, I don't subscribe to any of the music magazines, but if I see a copy of Downbeat laying around, I'll pick it up. And I'm just summing through the uh, album reviews, the CD reviews. And I say I recognize maybe 20% of the names. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure there are lots of people that I would enjoy that I just haven't, I just don't know about them, you know? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I... You know, and up until the pandemic, I was traveling a lot. So I would try to be aware of, of some of the good younger players. But I'd say, you know, there, I bet there are lots of burning 20-year-olds in New York I just don't know about yet, mm-hmm. you know. But so I think my knowledge of the good younger guitar players are people like Mike Moreno and uh, Gilad Hexelman. Jonathan is a little older now. Mm-hmm. Certainly I know about Ben's work, but Ben has been around for many, many years on the scene. Mm-hmm. Um there's some of this Charles Altura I heard recently. I'm impressed with him. Yeah, he's been absolutely. doing lots of high profile stuff in a while. Uh, Lionel, I like, but you know, in some cases, these folks are in their 40s and 50s. Julian, I like. I like what Julian Lodge is doing these days. Mm-hmm. So I try to keep up a little bit. And if someone has a new record coming out that I like, I'll try to listen to it at some point. Um, so, you know, I'm not in a vacuum here. I am trying to be aware of things, but I would say I'm not really listening on a regular basis. Um, but if someone says, hey, check this out, I will try, try to listen. Absolutely. You know, mm-hmm. um, but I think I'm a little bit behind the curve these days. Would I benefit from hearing some of these younger folks that I haven't heard yet? Probably. Maybe I'll get around to some of them. Uh, but mm-hmm. if I'm traveling, I also try to keep my, my eyes and my ears open. So but I wouldn't say I'm listening on a regular basis to a jazz station, per se, or keeping mm-hmm. up on all the current reviews. It's just such a huge glut of product out there at the moment. Um, I'm on a nice little independent label called Origin out of Seattle. I've got probably 20 plus CDs in their catalog, and I'm usually doing one or two things a year for them. So I'm aware of some of my label mates and what they're doing because I, I know the guys who run the label. So they'll say, hey, check this out. Mm-hmm. And uh, they've got a real wide variety of things on the label. Actually, they have three labels. It's run by two drummers, uh, Matt Jorgensen and John Bishop, you may know from your time in the Northwest. And John and I have, John is in this group scene. So I play with John mm-hmm. also. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty, I'm kind of aware of what the label is doing. So I try to keep up a little, but I, th- I could probably be a little more diligent. But I feel I get enough input to you know keep myself moving forward creatively. I hope. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely I, I feel the same way, but um, I feel like I have less of an excuse. Uh, I like I should be more up on it, but sometimes I just like mm-hmm. you know there's a lot of stuff uh, to do, and it's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's hard to find the time to really like tune in and listen. Um, so yeah. I mean, it, when you do listen, do you like find that you're like you know, super actively listening or is that the one thing that you're doing or is it more like you have it in the background or something like that? Uh, no, if I'm listening, I'm listening. You okay. know, I mean, unless I'm in the car, in which case I'm hopefully not hitting anybody. <laughs> but, you know, so I'm listening less intently, but if I'm, you know, if I want to listen to something, it's usually listening, listening. I'm, I'm not doing anything else. Oh. And it's fun to try to identify harmonic information. You know, mm-hmm. gee, this is not in 4-4. What meter? Okay, it's 5-4. I hear this. No, wait a minute. It's mixed meter. It's not all 5-4. So especially some of the stuff coming out of New York, there are lots of sort of challenging mixed media things, some of which I can identify, some not. But uh, yeah, I'm trying to to engage myself as a listener if I'm listening to something. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, something just occurred to me, which is, you know, uh, when we were talking about the exhaustive guitar playing thing, um, mm-hmm. I was realizing that, you know, not many people have imitated your sound. And like, for me... No, no one. It's too, it's too individual, John. Who wants to copy? You're not going to copy me. It's not going to happen. But I tell students, you can use 
some of what I'm, I'm trying to think of anyone sounds like me. Not really. And that's really fine. Mm-hmm. One of me is enough. So oh, yeah, you yeah. cannot I mean, I think telling folks what I tell students is by all means, if some, if you love something and you want to copy it, please do, but use that as an intermediate step to discovering your own voice if you can. Mm-hmm. Well, like, I guess for me in when I, you know, I'm a big Ben Maunder head. And so when I mm-hmm. learned his method of practicing and I started doing mm-hmm. it, then eventually I was like, oh man, I'm starting to sound like Ben a lot. And like, right. that's great. But like, also I feel kind of derivative. Um, and I feel like, you know, there are a bunch of like Ben Maunder lights out there. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, you know like uh, Jonathan Kreisberg lights and stuff, but I don't think that there's a John Stoll light, if you will. Probably not. And I mean, I think, could you copy me? Yeah, you could, but should you want to? Not necessarily. I mean, I'm not, I'm not everybody likes what I do. That's really okay too. I can't, I couldn't please everybody even if I wanted to. Mm-hmm. So some little voice in my head, part of this, uh, John, are, are the teachers that I had, uh, Link Chamberlain, who was a great kind of unsung guitar hero in Connecticut, and John Mahegan was a piano player who wrote some of the very first jazz theory books. Both of them were, were very helpful in terms of giving me a foundation, but they also encouraged me to try to find my own voice. So I think it's a combination of laziness and intuition telling me, listen and beware of the tradition. So I've absolutely listened a lot, but that same little voice said, listen, but don't copy. Mm-hmm. So that meant you got to try to create your own vocabulary. And I think some of the guys who have an individual voice who are my age transcribed like Pat Metheny, but others like Frizzell, Abercrombie, Sco, they didn't transcribe, I don't think. They just somehow found their own voice. They absolutely all listened and did their homework. But I think some, maybe the same thing. They wanted to create their own vocabulary. So that takes a little while to build enough harmonic knowledge to get through a set of changes and not sound like anybody else. Are you familiar with uh, the guitarist Ryan Ferreira? I do not know him. It, I was uh, thinking of him because he doesn't sound like you at all, but I feel like there's mm-hmm. some sort of thing where it's on a similar like lineage. Um, okay, Ryan, Ryan Ferreira. Yeah, um, he's he's kind of like a soundscape guy. Um, he okay. has like a, a few pedals, absolutely gorgeous tone. He plays a, a Parker Fly. And, okay. Um, his whole thing is like open chords. And so like... Okay. If you're on his Instagram, he's just always doing a new open chord and it's okay. super exotic sounding chords. And so uh, I feel like he's the only person that seems. I should check, so I should check him out. Yeah. Um, okay, I will. Yeah, I mean, I think chords actually, you know, some guitar players are have, have, have a beautiful sense of developed lines, but don't really spend a lot of time thinking about chords. Maybe part mm-hmm. of this is what your musical life is. But if you're playing alone or in duo settings or even some intimate trio settings, having a good chord vocabulary and more pianistic, I think really opens up a whole other world to you. That's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And um, so I think a lot about chords, even though, as I said, it's kind of a hunt and peck intelligent guesswork approach as opposed to Ben's more systematic approach. And maybe I will, like I said, get into some more of that. Tim Lurch, the name I mentioned earlier, Tim has a lot of beautiful kind of harmonized scale ideas. And uh, you know, Tim and I've been spending a little more time together. So I might tap into his knowledge of it to get some more of that. But like I said, if you ask me to identify just really obvious inversions or drop twos or drop threes. I couldn't do it, even though I'm playing a lot of those sounds. Mm-hmm. So I haven't really approached it that systematically. Uh, so, you know, maybe a little more of that kind of study would 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 would, would, would benefit me. Mm. We'll see. <laughs> Stay tuned. Um, I try to. <laughs> uh, <laughs> cool. Let's see here. What else? Um, okay, so teaching, um, I, I, I guess, like, I'm somebody who's not super, like, I don't feel like I'm a great teacher or like um, mm-hmm. that's something that I really identify with. But um, I assume that you do enjoy teaching and that's not just something that you do. Like, it seems like you are uh, somebody that excels at that. And so I'm curious, um, I do. If you can give me any sort of like large scale lessons that you've learned as a teacher that. Sure. Well, number one, you want to try to, unless you're talking to a group of people at a workshop, if you're doing one-on-one lessons, which I enjoy doing, and I haven't had students that have been with me for years. Very often it's just a one-off. Mm-hmm. Or some folks might hang around with me for a couple of months or maybe a year. But assuming it's a one-off, I want to try to engage that student wherever they are in terms of their level and make it fun for them to practice, mm-hmm. you know, to com- communicate my love of the music. Hopefully they love it too. And to present the information in a way that's not intimidating. So if we break harmonic information, rhythmic information, whatever it is, down into small components, you might remember in our session, you know, focusing on a, a specific piece of harmony that you can then integrate into a tune that you play already to give you concrete applications to the things you're studying so it doesn't just feel like abstract theory. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to make it engaging, fun, to create an environment where it's fun to learn where people are not nervous or intimidated, but just relaxed and having a good time. And just trying to engage them, find what 
motivates and engages them to practice and try to present my information to them in that way so that they feel like they, my goal is to have the student feel like they want to practice after the lesson. I want to, I want to learn this and I can see how I can add this to my playing to really give me some meaningful additions to my vocabulary. So that's my goal to engage the student. And I find that, and maybe you've had this experience in your own teaching that by explaining this information over and over, it does not become boring or repetitious because you're engaged with that person hearing it for the first time and trying to really get them motivated and to just to make it fun to practice. Mm -hmm. And so that's my goal. And I think I've gotten a little better at that over the years. I think I have a, like a way to explain some of this information that's a little bit original in terms of, you might remember from our session, thinking of the Moses keys. So then a melodic minor chord has multiple applications over dominant major minor chords. Mm -hmm. Same thing with harmonic minor, harmonic major. So I've expanded a little bit on that since our session. Uh, but again, the idea is to break down what feels like a fairly complex language to these very small components that people can absorb and understand right away. Mm -hmm. And then explaining to them that it's then a lifetime of trying to refine that, to find new melodies, to learn how to engage with other musicians in this conversation with this fairly complex harmonic information. And that is a, a goal. Essentially, that's, that's, that's the journey that we're on. And I also tell students to embrace their notion of being a student because we're students our whole musical lives mm -hmm. and we're never going to feel completely satisfied with our playing and very often we're feeling frustrated and a little stuck and that means you're about ready to maybe jump up to the next level because you're so familiar with what you've been working on that it feels kind of stale that means you're ready to absorb some new information so in a way feeling stuck is a good thing mm -hmm. it means you're about ready to jump up to some some new piece of info or add some new piece of information so you know to tell students part of it is the mindset to create an environment where you're feeling creative and moving ahead, surrounding yourself with other good musicians you love to play with. You can learn repertoire in that shared environment, talk about harmony in that shared environment, take the occasional lesson, maybe do a workshop. If you're in a good program, then you're surrounded by other musical friends that are part of building your network of people that you can be engaged with after you graduate. So I, you know, I pass along a little bit of kind of philosophy and how to create a musical environment to continue to improve and feel motivated to improve. So that's sort of part of what I try to do with the lessons too. And I, I can absolutely tell you that teaching has made me a better player. Mm -hmm. And it's just rewarding to build friend, to build friendships with these folks and in some cases see them doing well in their own careers as teachers and players. So Ben, as you might know, came to me when he was about 15 for some lessons. Mm -hmm. And he was serious when he was young and I moved away. So we lost touch for a long time and then got back in touch over the years with some other friends who knew him and I'd forgotten who he was because it had been 25 years since I'd seen him. As soon as I saw him, I remembered him immediately. Mm -hmm. So now we've been back in sporadic touch for another 20, 30 years probably. And I'm very happy to see him doing well. I take no credit for how he sounds now, <laughs> but maybe I kind of got him started, you know. And uh, he's created a very personal, beautiful voice. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, uh, okay, I, I guess uh, in terms of the like putting people at ease thing, um, uh, in lessons I'm curious it, like you have a very calming presence like even mm -hmm. in this interview I feel put at ease uh, and so I'm curious if that's always been something that's just part of your personality is if that's just who you are or if you ever had to like make the decision to like m put people at ease no I think that's just part of who I am okay. <laughs> one thing I have to try to do when I hear sometimes a recorded version of my lessons if a student will place something back for me so I can review what someone he's doing or she's doing I realize man you're talking so bloody fast slow down <laughs> so sometimes that, if you're in another country, you really want to do that so that the folks who don't have English as a first language can get you. Because when I'm talking, it doesn't feel particularly fast to me while I'm speaking. When I see it back, it feels too fast. So that's something I have to remember to do. But the putting at ease part is just something that I, that's just part of who I am. You know, people are going to play their best and absorb the information more readily if they're, if they're not stressed or feeling uh, intimidated or, mm -hmm. or feeling put on the spot. So I always want to make people feel comfortable and relaxed. And that's just part of what music should be when you're on the bandstand with other people too, mm -hmm. because people are going to play their best when you're playing in a way that supports them and makes them feel comfortable and happy. And the audience sees this too, sees us enjoying each other, respecting each other, mm -hmm. trying to put out music that serves the musical conversation so that we're all interacting well. And that's just part of what I, I mean, music to me should be fun. Absolutely. Yeah. To, to teach somebody to play together should be something we enjoy, you know? I mean, you can see some great music made under stressful circumstances, but to me, that's kind of antithetical to what music should be. Mm -hmm. I, I guess as a student um, back in the day, I sort of was always craving somebody uh, like a teacher that would be a little bit more like abrasive or like uh, give me mm -hmm. a harder time. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. have you ever felt like that 
is what you need to like adjust to to like really engage a student? Well, some people think that tough love, the student, assuming the student can kind of rise to that challenge if you're put on the spot, that that can be a, a benefit. And I think it can be, but absolutely not for everybody. Some mm -hmm. students might be so turned off and intimidated that they actually quit. And in that case, you may be removing someone from the gene pool who's real talented. And that's mm -hmm. something you should not do. So some musicians respond well to that kind of pressure, like, okay, I'm going to, I can handle this, pal. Throw it at me. Go ahead mm -hmm. and lay it on me, which is kind of what you're saying. But that's never been my approach, actually. Mm. Uh, some teachers, yes. I mean, and some students will say, yeah, he was really hard on me and I grew and I learned. And now I can really handle just about anything on the bandstand as a result of that, those experiences with my teacher. So that does serve some people well, but not everybody. Mm -hmm. So I think you're, you know, I think you're taking a bit of a risk if that's your approach as a teacher, because you could be turning off someone who potentially is a really talented musician right. who is so put off by it and assume that, that that's a failing on their part. And they think I can't do this. You know, it's too much. It's I'm not comfortable with this. Mm -hmm. So it, I think it's it does absolutely serve some students well. It may have served you well if you encountered that. And I have encountered that on the bandstand, not with my own teachers. And generally, I've been able to kind of power through it. But I, I think if, at this point in my life, if someone puts out those vibes, I'm done. Mm -hmm. You know, I've, I've never had to sort of stop and walk off a bandstand and say I'm done. But if, if someone really laid a heavy vibe on me on the bandstand now, I probably would say you know cool this or, or I'm gone, you know, mm -hmm. but I'm almost always playing with my friends. So I, I'm almost never hired as a side member, someone I don't know. Can't remember the last time that happened actually. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, I know what I'm getting into if I'm on the bench thing with friends. Cause I, you know, I, I, I know all these people and they know me. So we know and respect each other's musical abilities. We have a sense of how we're going to interact, even if it's not a regular working band. So, you know, my goal, even if it's just a little background gig or obviously a more high profile thing, but whatever the musical situation, I'm there to play my best and I'm there to make everyone else feel comfortable so they can play their best too. Awesome. Um, so we're at an hour here and I, I just have a few more questions. You have a few sure. more minutes? Awesome. I do, John. Awesome. Beautiful. Um, okay. So in terms of, you know, teaching and seeing students over the years, I'm just curious um, if you've seen any sort of big patterns of changes among students over the years, hmm. over your career. Well, yes and no. I mean, like I said, I think I'm encouraged to see some of the younger students still interested in learning some of the standard repertoire. I think that's great, which means those tunes will continue to be played as they should be. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not really sure. I think maybe players now realize they're going to have to do something else besides just play jazz mm -hmm. to make a living. So maybe some of the music they're playing is a reflection of that, maybe incorporating elements of hip hop or pop or something else. So maybe some new little hybrid variations on jazz are being created that some of which could be very interesting. I'm not really up on all that, mm -hmm. but some of that could be the case. And I think smart young musicians are realizing that maybe even something else in the music field that's not related strictly to playing. So production, recording, mm -hmm. promotion, publishing, whatever it happens to be, because I'm making, in many cases, I'm making the same money in little clubs now that I made in the, in the 1970s. Mm -hmm. And I think smart young musicians realize this. So maybe they're going to be creating a genre that's a little more popular than the standard repertoire amongst their peers. I'd be curious to see where the music's going. I'm not, the young players that I talk to so I played last night at a little club here in Portland. This is kind of a jam session. And there's some guys there in their early 20s. And they were we were playing Joy Spring and, uh, and we're playing standards, you know, but not for me. And they not only played the tunes, but they really played them pretty well. Mm -hmm. They really played them pretty well. They, they had a depth of understanding. They weren't just spinning riffs and licks. They were referencing some of the thematic material of the melody. I thought, you know, these are pretty mature young players for folks mm -hmm. in their late teens, early 20s. And I was very happy to be there with them. So I think, you know, some some portion of the of the younger musicians are going to want to play some of the standard repertoire, whether or not they're making their living with that. I think that's unlikely. Mm -hmm. But the fact that they see value in learning some of that tradition and some of the harmonic pathways that standards take you on, I think is, is great. You know, um, but we do this, you know, we're called to this for the love of the music. And then we have to figure out a way how to make a living with this. Mm -hmm. And I think most of the people you teach are not going to be professional musicians, however, many of them will become serious amateur musicians with musical life and to have music in their lives is, is a great thing. Mm -hmm. And even if it's just a way to relieve stress, but it also engages you mentally and physically in a way that I think is really beneficial, Absolutely. even if it's not your living. Um, so uh, another question I have here about um, your, I guess like the silhouette uh, guitar that you play, mm -hmm. I noticed that there's like this little jacket sweater thing on it yeah a friend of mine made a little cloth covering those are just plastic tubes but i do need the shape of the body the guitar would sound the same without mm -hmm. the little plastic tubes but i thought it looked kind of minimalist 
and a friend offered to create a little plaque. That's my third or fourth iteration, maybe the best one, of a little cloth covering. So from 50 feet away, it kind of looks like I'm playing a guitar that has a body. Mm-hmm. People come up close and they'll sort of touch it and wonder what it is. So it's just it's just cosmetic, basically. Um, I think it looks really hip, and like yeah. I've, I've wanted to like figure out something like that for my Strandberg. And um, mm-hmm. I, I'm so. Are you the only person that you know of that does this? You just had actually a friend of mine also bought a silhouette, and he also found a seamstress to make a little cloth covering for his. My friend Anson Wright, who also has a silhouette, and he's the only other one to know with the cloth covering. He found someone else to do it for him when because he liked mine. Yeah, I, I I would love to do that for my guitar, but like a little like a little sweater. But, Why not? <laughs> yeah, I, I just need to find a seamstress, I guess. Um, I think LA probably has a few seamstresses. I bet you're right. Probably. <laughs> um, I guess the last question I have um, is basically about um, just your musical lifestyle and like mm-hmm. how you sort of nurture your creative. Like, I, you know, you are like you're blowing me out of the you know uh, park on uh, your YouTube channel. Like, you are consistently putting stuff out, and I feel like uh lazy myself watching what you're doing so i'm curious how you've nurtured this sort of um creative force that you have or how well you it, you know? i think you know until 2020 i was on the road most of the year so i was not really active online i would just do the one-off skype lesson and i had some things that you could buy online from people like dc music true fire uh, mel bay mike's master classes so i had a fair amount of content you could purchase but i wasn't really engaged in active posting everybody i know with a successful youtube presence or a successful online presence and I would not call my online presence successful in terms of revenue, but in terms of visibility, now I think I have a better presence mm-hmm. just based on the fact that I knew I had to do something to try to stay engaged creatively when I knew I couldn't travel or initially play. You know, I was curious actually when the pandemic started, John, how I'd feel about music. And I still have played every day throughout all this. And as soon as the weather warmed up in 2020, I had people out in the garden here. I just rent a few rooms in somebody's house with a big garden. Low overhead is the, is the name of my game in terms of surviving with this. <laughs> I've always you know, rented rooms in people's houses. I've never owned a house. I have no desire to own a house. So um, I thought I've got to get busy online. So I had my friend Sebastian Klausmann, who's a friend in Germany, a young guitar player about your age, who I work with there, who's pretty internet savvy. So he created my YouTube channel for me and he agreed to post videos for me. So initially it was just me here in my room with the iPad and then eventually an external mic. So the quality was okay. And Sebastian uh, had some audio plugins that he could enhance the, the sound with. So we started posting and uh, has it helped a little bit in terms of visibility and in terms of um, maybe a little bit of attendance at concerts and a few purchases of CDs and courses, the answer is yes. But I discovered after a while, I thought initially after a thousand subscribers that you would start to get a little bit of revenue and monetize your channel, but ultimately to make any real money on YouTube, you've gotta be up around you know, 20, 30,000 subscribers. I'm nowhere mm-hmm. near there. I'm not even 2000 at this point, two years in, mm-hmm. but I'll keep posting. And it's also a way to create some interesting collaborations. So I've done a bunch of virtual duels with friends in different cities, several of which have actually become one with my friend uh, Isabel. She's a great um, younger piano player in North Spain, Northwest Spain. And I think we're doing something that will end up on, on, on an album project she's doing. And I have some other collaborations that could eventually become projects. So these are friends in other cities or countries and you just record with a click and you have to imagine they're playing with you. Mm-hmm. And uh, But it, it's not perfect, but it can't work. now. Since I've been traveling a bit, I've actually been in the same room with some folks and done some duos that way. So anytime I'm traveling, I just encourage people to throw up an iPhone or an iPad and we, and we make some videos. Awesome. So a number of them in the last six months have been with friends and where we're actually in the same room together. And, you know, it just nurtures the spirit of collaboration and allows for in-person collaborations to happen when they are possible. And we will get back to some kind of a new normal, I hope, by the spring of next year, if not sooner. We'll see. So I've just tried to keep myself engaged, you know, primarily online, but a little bit in terms of live gigs over the last couple of years and feel like my musical life, thankfully, has continued. But you do have to work at it. Mm-hmm. And like I said, everybody I know who has a successful online presence has said to me, keep posting, try to engage with people when they make a comment. And some of those folks have come for some lessons. Um, so, you know, you want to, but the idea is to keep putting up good content, keep mm-hmm. doing it. So I'm not, I'm doing it almost weekly, almost every week both on my YouTube channel and the True Fire YouTube channel under my name. So the True Fire is a company in Florida that I've done five educational courses for that I've done for them in Florida. And their YouTube channel has 465,000 subscribers. <laughs> They've got 400, 500 musicians they work with all styles, thousands of lessons and courses. Good small company, nice people. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, those, those um, 
you, the videos I have on their YouTube channel, obviously, it's, 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 it's potentially reaching a wider audience. So I'm always kind of looking for ways to create new contacts, create new collaborations, enhance my online presence. And this has to be an ongoing practice to, you know, to keep things moving. You can't just post a video and then leave it and not do anything else for months. Mm-hmm. And people, people are not interested. Uh, the Mike's Masterclass Society is another one I'm involved with, which uh, is a site that has hundreds of individual lessons that you can buy as individual lessons. And when the pandemic started, I had maybe 20 or 30 in there, maybe less, maybe 15 in their, in their catalog that you could buy. But I thought, why not reach out to some friends and teach classes together where we're in different places? So I've done now probably 30 lessons with Tim Lurch that I mentioned and a number of other folks, some people in other countries where we teach together and that has, so now I've got, I think I'm up to about 40 or maybe a few more. So almost half of those are lessons that I've co-taught. So I've learned a lot just teaching with other great musicians and that has generated some sales and some revenue and some exposure. So the idea is to keep posting, awesome. keep posting. I would encourage you to do the same. <laughs> yeah, I was hoping that I could just post a video and leave it there, but um, I guess- Well, you can, <laughs> and some people will buy it or look at it, but then those same people, they get them coming back, you gotta post another one, John. I would encourage you to do it when you have time. <laughs> yeah, I need to need to get back to it. Uh, but you know, your senior YouTube channel is very quickly inspired. So um, yeah, I'm it's... I'm happy about that. Well, I've encouraged you to do the same. <laughs> when your schedule permits, I would encourage you to do the same. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. Well, uh, this has been a really enjoyable conversation for me, and um, I for me too, John. <laughs> awesome. It's good to reconnect. Um, please Let's stay in touch. Let me know when you're in Los Angeles. I'll let you know um, when I'm in the Northwest. Please. Um, and uh, if people want to find you online, you have the YouTube channel and then your website is, is it just johnstoll.com? Yeah, you can reach me there. You can reach me on Facebook Messenger. Uh, I'm easy to track down and uh, you can see lots of uh, excerpts for free from my Mike's Masterclasses classes, you know, my own or the ones I've co-taught, three courses with DC Music, five, course, five courses with True Fire, a video and a book with Mel Bay. So you can see lots of samples of all that for free on my YouTube channel and just on YouTube generally and some on my website. Awesome. Cool. Great, cool. John. Well, I sure enjoyed our conversation today. Yeah. Thanks so much for talking to me. Um, I'll my see pleasure. You in the future. Sounds great, John. Stay well. You too.